you know, they evaluated students, they gave us tests. We were very good students at Peabody High School, and yet we, when we met with her, Ms. Grammer... Was she an African-American? No, she was a little white lady. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She did ask me what I wanted to, to be, and I said, well, I'd really like to study foreign language, and I think I'd like to be an interpreter at the U.N., and she said to me, well, you know, you had such great dexterity, I could see that you could perhaps work in a circus or carnival. You could, you could put popcorn and, you know, and serve people. And I don't know if I was angry or if I was, I was sad, but I thought I know a little bit more about me than this lady will ever know, nor does she care to know. Through her determination... Mrs. Judith Anderson went on to become a teacher, spending decades serving her community and the whole state of Virginia, both inside and outside of the classroom. Welcome to the Teachers in the Movement podcast. Teachers in the Movement is an oral history project that explores teachers' ideas and pedagogy inside and outside of the classroom during the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. To watch the full interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. I'm Dr. Alexa Rodriguez, and I'm a postdoctoral research associate for the Teachers in the Movement project at the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Virginia. I'm joined today by two of my colleagues, Dr. Carmen Foster and Mr. Gary Flowers. I'm Dr. Carmen Foster. I serve as a public historian, a leadership coach, and an organizational development consultant. I'm also a doctoral graduate at the University of Virginia. I was a consultant for the Teachers in the Movement Project, and I conducted this interview with Mrs. Anderson. I am Gary Flowers. I am host of the Gary Flowers radio show. I'm a consultant with Teachers in the Movement and a 1985 graduate of the University of Virginia. So Mrs. Anderson gives us so much to talk about. She's led a truly remarkable life. In addition to her years teaching French in Richmond, she investigated housing discrimination, served as a legislative aide to the first black governor of Virginia, spearheaded the Virginia Civil Rights Memorial on the Capitol grounds, and even spent a few years living in Europe as a young mother. But before we dive into her stories, I just wanted to ask, did either of you know Mrs. Anderson personally? Yes, I met her when I was nearly three years old. I was a student, if you will, in the first African Baptist Church nursery school where her son was an attendee, and we became fast friends. My parents knew her parents, and so my mother and she were, had a sisterhood and a bond prior to my birth. And I knew Judy Anderson as a youngster. You see, my father was a dentist and he was a mentor to her husband, Ralph. So during that time, I can't imagine not knowing Judy Anderson because she's been one of Richmond's many unsung sheroes because her intellect, activism and grace is part of what I wanted to be growing up as a young woman. So we're going to hear a little bit about her early life. So from a very young age, she crossed paths with a lot of civil rights pioneers. As we're listening, I'm going to pause a couple times and ask you both to talk a little bit about some of the folks she mentions. My name is Judith Vivian Cephas Anderson. Um, I was born in Richmond um, at a hospital, the only hospital that I could have been born in. 
uh, Dr. Zenobia Gilpin was the only physician who could deliver me, um, and uh, that was at uh, Community Hospital. But I grew up in Ettrick, Virginia, at Virginia State College. Uh, my parents were both employed there. My father at the time was a bookkeeper at Virginia State. Uh, my mom was a piano teacher. It was a very nurturing community. Because we lived on campus, and we lived right next door to the campus minister, Reverend Samuel Gandy. He had lots of ministers that would come to speak. So I can remember, you know, we'd sit on the front porch and you'd hear your parents talking to people like Dr. Mordecai Johnson and others. You'd hear these conversations that you knew there was another world out there, but we were moving toward that other world. Um, and, you know, you'd be in their house and in would walk Reverend Thurman, um, Howard Thurman, because he, he spoke there fairly frequently. And he'd come in and we'd be sitting at the kitchen table and they'd fix him a plate and he'd eat and we'd be playing canass. And I, later in life, I thought, my God, I remember that man. I mean, I, I can't believe I, I was a child, maybe 11, 12 years old, but I was in the presence of giants. Who was Dr. Mordecai Johnson? Oh, Dr. Mordecai Johnson happened to be the president of Howard University and interestingly, he was the 11th president, but the first black president. He was the son of former slaves, and he raised millions of dollars for Howard. He became the president in 1926 when he was only 36 years old. He just was brilliant at hiring people at Howard to make it known as the Mecca that we know it as now. And what about uh, Reverend Howard Thurman? Reverend Howard Thurman, in many ways, is the theologian's theologian in the Black community. He is more quoted than any other Black theologian in American history. His quotes, as brilliant and as articulate as they are, they were so commonsensical. You know, I would agree with Gary. Howard Thurman was one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. In fact, Life magazine in 1953 honored him by recognizing him as one of the 12 greatest preachers of the 20th century. And he led a Negro delegation to India in 1936, where they all had the opportunity to meet Mahatma Gandhi. So let's hear a little bit more about her early life. But my parents um, had wonderful friends. There were just so many marvelous people, whether they were on faculty, whether they were people that worked uh, on campus as cooks in the laundry. There was very little distinction. One of my father's best friends was the night watchman. Uh, they used to go fishing together. Uh, so we had this kind of community. It was very different. Virginia State uh, back during the 40s and 50s or 60s. So it was a rich community. We were not associated separately from Petersburg, but there was a certain distinction. And what I do recall was my mother and father didn't want us to feel that we were privileged. We knew that we had certain benefits because we were 
living there on the campus. But my parents said, no, you know, you're part of the Petersburg community, too. So my my mother was very, very involved in organizations. We went to church in Petersburg, and uh, we had lots of friends that lived uh, in the city. You described how Virginia State was a kind of magical place for you growing up. Mm-hmm. You went to Peabody High School. Mm-hmm. What was it like going to Peabody High School? Isn't that in Petersburg? Yes, it was. Um, I loved my experience at Peabody High School. Had lots and lots of friends and still have. Just celebrated my 60th reunion with my Peabody High School friends this past summer. Now from um, Peabody High, you mm-hmm. went to Virginia State. Tell yes. Me about what you majored in and why you studied, what you studied, and and what campus life was like for you? Well, I was only 16, and my parents did not want, they didn't think I was mature enough to go away to college. I wanted to go to Hampton or Howard, but they said, no, you must stay here. So I stayed there, and um, I lived, you know, at home. I wanted to live in the dormitory. I just wanted to have the college experience, Uh, but that was not to be the case. Uh, But it it was fine. I did all the silly, crazy things that freshmen do. Um, but, you know, we were still children. And um, we had nurturing teachers, uh, great faculty and staff. People were so committed to the success of the students. What mm-hmm. was your uh, degree in? In French. Had a BS in French. I always I, I said I wanted to work at the UN, wanted to be an interpreter. Um, and Dr. Tommy Carter was the uh, head of the uh, French department. So that was just another blessing. I, HBCUs still have a strong place uh, in this country, I believe. Um, I'm happy that my sons graduated from Hampton University. I was determined that my boys were going to attend an HBCU. That was something I was, felt very strongly about. Now, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee was um, very active in a lot of mm-hmm. um, historically black colleges. Mm-hmm. What was Virginia State's group like? I was not involved in SNCC per se, okay. but I participated in the sit-down strikes that we had at Woolworths, and I can recall we would go and we were trained. Uh, we used to go to Gilfield, which is where Y.T. Walker was, and he was my hero and is still my hero. Um, and so we would do our training at his church in the basement. They tried to intimidate us. And they pushed us, and they said, what are you going to do if you get pushed when you go to this lunch encounter? So we're going to stand stand up, and we're going to be you know, strong, and we're going to hang in there, and we're going to just keep our cool. But we're going to sit at that lunch counter, and we're going to demand that we have a soda. Because, you know, we always were trained to go in and you buy something, buy you know, toothpaste or whatever. So you've made a purchase, so you're a legitimate shopper. And so we would go, and we lined up. And we did lots and lots of practice uh, sessions. Um, So we were very well prepared. And I can remember, though, the president of Virginia State College at the time did not want students to participate in these sit-down strikes. And both of my parents were instructors there. And I didn't want to jeopardize their situation. But my father and my mother both said, Judy, You all are doing what we should have been doing. I support what you want to do. And my mother, because she was from Chicago, it was just really tough for her to come and have to deal with segregation, having grown up in Chicago, even though they had their issues in Chicago. It was certainly very different. Uh, So 
my parents were very enthusiastic about what I was doing, so I had their support. And um, so, yeah, I was one of the rebels, and the, we were threatened. Uh, we were told that we should not do this. The president was very much against this. And as a matter of fact, he took the funding away for our um, yearbook. I don't have a yearbook from the class of 1960 because they took every privilege, every right, everything away from the students that participated. And, uh, but we ignored that and we didn't continue to do sit-down strikes the entire spring of uh, 1959. Now, after Virginia State and mm -hmm. you get your degree in mm -hmm. French, mm -hmm. um, you wind up marrying a wonderful man and you wind up going to Europe. Oh, yes, that was a couple of years afterwards, yeah. yes, yes. I married the love of my life that I met at Virginia State, and my, we started dating in our sophomore year, and um, he was in ROTC. So we, he went into the service. We knew that he needed a couple of years to get, you know, through he jump school. He became a paratrooper, and so uh, we got married two years later. And then he got orders for Germany, and I was just devastated. I hated the thought of having to leave my family, but that was really the most wonderful experience that I could ever have had. Uh, it was very liberating. I grew up, became a, a woman. <laughs> I was a child when I left, a young mother. But uh, it was a great experience. And I had the kinds of experiences there that really made me feel very proud to be an African-American. Um, I was treated better there. We were treated better there in that country that had, you know, had a Hitler. We were treated better by the German people and we were treated in Petersburg, Virginia or even in Richmond, Virginia. I mean, there were just experiences. Uh, we jo joined the German-American club. We got to, you know, know the people in the community. We did a lot of traveling. We had no money, but it didn't take money to travel. You could just leave your child with someone on post, and you could just... We, took, we spent a week in, in Lausanne for the Swiss Exposition, and we, had, we took a pup tent on our Volkswagen. We just drove all around and got to meet people and see, you know, have experiences and, you know, just go to, you know, Rotterdam and Amsterdam and to see fine art, and we just grew as individuals. So it was a great experience to have had uh, those four years in the military. So what's your reaction to Mrs. Anderson's experience in Europe? You know, ultimately, she was destined for international experience. The fact that someone would tell her, why are you studying French? You're better suited to do something else. You know, she was destined to be on a global world stage in some way, just to experience what else is beyond Petersburg. So Europe certainly was and still continues to be a place where people experience racism as well. And in these post-war years, what do you think Mrs. Anderson and other Black people serving in the military believed that they were treated better in Germany and in Europe rather than in the United States? You can find that in the expatriate movement of artists from Josephine Baker to James Baldwin and their freedom, both physically and emotionally and spiritually, in a place that did not directly degrade them for their skin color. So I can only imagine that Mrs. Anderson and Dr. Anderson felt as though they were 
citizens of the world and had a universal perspective uh, while in Europe. Now you come back to Virginia. Oh, yes. And is that where you started your um, experience as an educator? It was. Um, my husband came back to go to dental school, and so I had to teach. I had not taught, had not done anything for those several years and uh, those four years. So it was really quite a challenge for me. And there was a woman in Richmond whose name was Emma Davidson. She was the supervisor of uh, foreign language uh, teachers that taught in the black schools, Armstrong, Maggie Walker, um, and also the elementary schools because they had, had just begun the teaching of foreign languages French at that time in elementary schools and as well as middle school. So she asked me whether or not I would be interested in teaching. And I said, I need to teach. I need to do something. And so she said, well, let me ask you this. Would you be comfortable in teaching? Because, you know, we're going through an integration and things are beginning to change in Richmond, which I was so happy to hear. She said, but I'd like for you to meet with another lady. She said, you know, my counterpart is um, interested. I think I've finally gotten her to understand that perhaps there's some people of color that can also teach in the other schools. And so she said, would you mind meeting with her? And I said, I'd be, anything, Ms. Davidson, that you want me to do, I will do. So I did go and I met with Ms. Klein. She did question me about my background. And um, you know, we spoke a little in French. And I think she felt comfortable that I was, could at least teach elementary and middle school French at that point even though I had not taught since college, had not taught at all. I was very intimidated by her. She was a little lady that I felt really didn't want to take this journey, uh, but was willing to at least give me a chance. And I think Ms. Davidson had a lot to do with that. And I, she was a wonderful, positive spirit in my life. Uh, and I didn't want to let her down. I could care less about Ms. Klein, but I, I did want to live up to the standard that I thought Ms. Davidson had for me. And so I, I was a roving teacher. They had me assigned at Binford Middle School, and um, I had a homeroom there. I taught two classes there. Then I'd leave and I'd go to Ginter Park Elementary School or to J.E.B. Stewart Elementary School. So I was definitely a roving teacher and I'd have to return at the end of the day and have my homeroom to come back. So it was very, very rigorous. It was a very rigorous period in my life. But, you know, it, it was a time that I grew as an individual. Um, and I think I brought some experiences, hopefully, to the young people that I taught because I'd had the experience of having left Virginia and having grown as a person, full of confidence, full of great experiences, having lived in Europe. Uh, and so I think I, hopefully I brought something, played a positive role in their lives. Um, did the issue of civil rights or equality come up in your classes or among your teaching colleagues during that time? Yes, I think, you know, especially teachers, other teachers who knew that you know, I'd had these experiences. Um, there were only a few white teachers that were at Benford at that time. Um, so at Benford, it was beginning to. It was beginning to. I did have some. Basically, I think the students that were remaining at Benford were from Oregon Hill, 
which is the poorer section of, of Richmond. I'm pretty sure there were very few from North Side and certainly none from the West End, even though Benford was on Floyd Avenue in the West End. Um, there, were, there were a few, but very few there at the time. The principal, I will never forget, was a Mr. Metzger. Uh, Mr. Metzger and, um, uh, um, and the assistant principal uh, was also uh, white, uh, but they were very welcoming. I, I really have positive memories, good memories about the experiences with them. And um, then, of course, when I went to the other schools, um, I had to deal with the administrators there. Um, but I had there were great young people at those schools. Now, J.E.B. Stewart had really become primarily a, 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 a black school uh, in 66, uh, and even more so by the time I finished teaching. There were some white students there, but by, the, by 1970, when we left Richmond, there it was pretty much all black. And then I had Ginner Park, and then I also taught at Amelia Street School. So I had different experiences, it just depended upon where you went. But I had very supportive administrators, especially at Ginner Park. Um, in fact, I had maintained a relationship with one or two of the students, the white students that I had there for a number of years. Uh, so all in all, I guess you'd say it was a positive experience. It was a growing experience, a learning experience for me, and very different from the Richmond that I had left uh, or known uh, prior to having gone to uh, What, what made it different? And do you find that the experience from the movement um, influenced you at all with your pedagogy and with the curriculum at that time? I think so. Uh, and the people that I met were all very different. Um, Describe what you mean by different. By different. I always felt that the black teachers were stronger teachers, really more committed to the education of their children. And I'm just thinking about this now because I don't think anybody's ever asked me this question. Black teachers were so committed to being sure that their students were going to get the best kind of education possible. And I think they welcomed what I was trying to do with my students. I wasn't just going in to teach them a language. I wanted them to learn to do folk dances, little French folk dances. I wanted them to learn the foods. I, I would go out and with my own little money, I'd buy French cheese. I'd take Gruyere. I mean, I provided them, you know, opportunities to taste French cuisine. Uh, so I wanted it to be a full experience for them, not just the language, but the thought. And the other teachers supported me in that. And I knew that they wanted the best for their students. And uh, I wanted to give them what the best that I could give them. I just felt the difference in how they responded and perhaps how some of the white teachers responded um, when I was doing the very same things at Ginner Park that I was doing, for example, at J.E.B. Stewart or at Benford. What, what do you think were those differences when you went to the white schools and did that? There were some teachers that just, I think, were just not ready for, for integration, and some of them did leave. Uh, you know, I remember one or two that were there at Ginner Park when I was there the first year, were not there the second year that I was there. Uh, so those teachers were moving on. Some just could not handle integration. I never, don't think I know the stories regarding what the moves, why they made moves, but it was something that I suspect, you know, suspected was the case. Uh, and then talking with some of the other teachers, you find out a little bit about, you know, well, so-and-so's gone to the county 
they were going to Chesterfield, they were going to Hanover County, but they were not staying in Richmond. And those counties were welcoming those teachers. So Dr. Foster, you've participated in school desegregation in Richmond as a student, but you also wrote your dissertation about this period. Can you talk a little bit about desegregation in Richmond? On September 6, 1960, two young black girls walked up the steps of Chandler Junior High School on Richmond's Brooklyn Park Boulevard. And they did it without a court order. Oliver Hill had hoped for hundreds of applications from students and parents to desegregate Richmond schools. He only got four applications in May of 1960. And out of those, only two were admitted. One student decided that she really didn't want to participate. And the other student's application was contested because frankly, his parents were activists. When the two young girls walked up the steps at Chandler Junior High School on September the 6th, 1960, the newspaper articles had headlines that said, everything is normal, everything is fine, but everything was not fine and everything was not normal. And that was what I wanted to understand for the basis of my dissertation, because I felt like this was a veneer of the truth. Actually, white parents had been outside protesting, getting ready for the two children to come to the school. And police had to circulate around the neighborhood to shoo them away because the optics were not going to be good for the cameras and the news stories. And in many ways, the Commonwealth of Virginia and its gentility did not want scenes from Richmond, Virginia that were seen in Alabama or Mississippi. It was the cavalier, pun intended, spirit that said, everything's fine, everything's normal. When underneath, the tensions raged. I was part of the first wave of students that followed them. And I wound up in 1963 going to Benford Junior High School, which was in the West End of Richmond. By 1963, only 300 Black students had chosen to go to white schools. Um, It was so glaring to have grown up in a nurturing environment similar to what Judy Anderson described in Petersburg at Virginia State. I like to say that we lived in a bronze bubble, whereas students, we were nurtured in the community as children. There was no dividing line between church, community, and school. Parents knew us, the parents of our friends knew us, and our teachers often worshiped in some of the churches that we went to. So to be taken from this nurturing environment into these white schools, it was a very awkward experience. Students that were there, the white students, they didn't want us there. The white teachers did not know how to teach us. I was 10 years old when I was in the seventh grade. I was reading on a 12th grade level when I was in the sixth grade, but yet I was considered inferior and less than. 
the disparities in socioeconomics between whites, among whites, was something that I had not been exposed to. So I had a lot of questions as a kid. Is this supposed to be better? How come I can't make friends? Why is it that the teachers aren't connecting with me? The white teachers just were not prepared. When Judy Anderson described what it was like for her to be prepared to even deal with the the, the Woolworths boycotts and how they were trained. There was no training on the other side, I think, for white teachers or white students to contend with the fact that their schools were becoming integrated. There was so much fear, animosity, and um, confusion that it was really a difficult experience for many of us. So she mentions teachers that were not ready for integration moving into the county schools and and being welcomed there. Can you speak about this phenomenon? White flight was very apparent in Richmond. It started before 1960 school desegregation as whites began to start to trickle into Henrico and Chesterfield counties nearby. As more Black children started going to the white schools, you saw this tipping point where schools, if they were integrated, they were only integrated in terms of balance for a short time as whites began to leave. Was there ever a time in which Richmond City schools were effectively integrated? I think that... Effective integration was always a struggle for Richmond public schools because of white flight. The superintendents tried their best to do what they could to achieve racial balance. But frankly, in my opinion, I don't think it really ever worked successfully because white flight poured into Henrico and Chesterfield counties. So Mrs. Anderson actually worked to desegregate housing in Richmond, in addition to working with schools. Let's hear a little bit about it. You've had some interesting experiences Mm -hmm. beyond the time that you served as an educator Mm -hmm. in terms of um, civil rights activism in a different way, Mm -hmm. where you've been involved with um, serving the Commonwealth of Virginia Mm -hmm. and working on projects. Let's talk about some of the activities that you've been involved in much more recently that really have been influenced by your civil rights activism in your earlier days. Okay. Well, when Ralph was in dental school and I taught, I had to work during the summer as well. So I had an opportunity, and I can't recall how this happened, to work for Housing Opportunities Made Equal. And it had just begun. The organization had been started by Barbara Wurzel. And um, this organization was looking into uh, housing discrimination. Um, so we'd integrated the schools, and now we've got to start integrating neighborhoods. And so this organization was very small, which was Barbara, and I became a tester, or I worked with testers. I got testers to go into various situations. You send a white family in first, you send a black family in, then you send another white family in just to verify that black family wasn't um, offered any property. Um, And so I did that. Uh, That was a summer job 
And so I did that for two or three years. I can't recall. I think it was three years. So that was a great experience. But, of course, I was working, you know, it was about civ- all about civil rights. Um, and then I had other opportunities. Um, just life has been really interesting. I was at a cocktail party or dinner dance or something, and I talked to Doug Wilder. Doug and Ralph had grown up in Churchill. Well, we were at this party, and so... Doug said, well, you know, welcome back to Richmond, and what are you doing? And, and I said, Man, you know, subbing at Maggie Walker and, you know, wherever I can work. And he said, well, I need a legislative aide. And so I said, I wouldn't know legislative aide. What do you mean? He says, well, I, I think you could handle it. It's not that tough. So I became Doug's legislative aide, and that must have been 73, 1973. And from that point on, I just, I loved that political stuff. I loved learning about, you know, how bills became laws. And I worked with lots of organizations and, you know, the women libbers were coming down. We were trying to get the equal rights amendments passed and all of these things. No money, very little money, but it was such a great learning experience. And I got to meet lots of movers and shakers. And of course, then Doug decides he's going to run for lieutenant governor and so I was involved with that, and then, of course, he ran for governor, um, and then I directed all of his inaugural activities, and at that point, that was just, that was the most, that was really an experience. So I, you know, I've been blessed in the opportunities that I've had uh, to meet interesting people along the way, and having worked for him, and then Chuck Robb, I was d- deputy director of his transition when he became governor. Then I worked for um, Mark Warner, and then, you know, I did Tim Kaine's. I headed his transition office when he became um, governor. I, they pulled me out of retirement because I had actually said, I'm too old for all of this. I can't work campaigns again. I, wor- I, was deputy- I was actually political director of the Democratic Party of Virginia. I forgot that, too. Did that for to a couple of years. Um, so, Weren't you also like an assistant secretary? I was deputy secretary of the Commonwealth, yes, and Mark Warner's, uh, yeah. But I told him I would do it. I was not going to work for anyone beyond the, uh, after the age of 60. So I retired on my birthday. March the 20th, and I, I when I turned 60. Uh, but yeah, but I still have done, I've still maintained my relationships with people like that. Mrs. Anderson spent her whole life in public service, and she's not the only teacher we've heard from who's both served in a classroom and as a policymaker. What do you think drives teachers to work in policy? I taught in Richmond Public Schools in the late 70s, and I worked as a staffer in the General Assembly when Judy Anderson was Doug Wilder's legislative assistant. She inspired me. And I realized that the tools that I had as an educator really were interdisciplinary. And those skills that I had as an educator were ideal for policymaking because we have a broad lens through which we can see issues. I have worked in local and state and in federal government, and I am so grateful that I started my career as a teacher in the Richmond Public Schools. And I will tell you that Judy Anderson has been a role model and a shero for me as I've moved forward in my career. 
there is something on the Capitol grounds that's mm -hmm. very special for you mm -hmm. that is like a hallmark of civil rights in Virginia. Can you talk about that project? Yes. Um, as I said, I'd worked for Mark, and um, I was stepping away. But um, Mark said, we've got a little something we've been talking about. His wife, Lisa, had uh, been walking the grounds of the Capitol, and her daughters said, Mom, why don't they have any women on the Capitol? It's just all men, all white men, and, and there are no young people. And so Lisa started thinking about this, and she talked to Mark about it, and they asked me if I would be interested in just exploring the ideas of doing something on Capitol Square grounds. And, of course, that was just, to me, what we needed to do. And I thought, well, I guess I can do one more thing. And so Lisa and I took the responsibility of going around. We needed to raise money. Uh, we needed to identify a sculptor. We needed to identify the theme. And by that time, Mark had actually stepped down and Tim had become governor. So we formed a commission. We determined what kind of statue we felt was appropriate. And we decided that we had the Barbara Johns story and the story of the strike at Moton was so significant in the, the history of Virginia. And it also reflected the strength the courage of young people, supported by the community and led by great leaders like Spotswood Robinson and Oliver Hill, who was my personal hero. Certainly Oliver was my, my hero. Of course, I had to get permission from everyone to have their likeness. Reverend Robert Griffith, who was the minister, who, when they closed the schools at Moton, allowed the kids to come to the basement of First Baptist Church in Farmville, to study. The teachers would come down and work with them at, at nights. It was just the right thing to happen at the right time. And so in 2008, we unveiled this memorial. And it's a tribute not just to Barbara Johns and the students, but also people in the community, somebody representing the farmer, someone representing the mothers who were supportive of their kids. It was tough. People lost their jobs. Um, it was a very difficult time, and we wanted to portray all of that in this one statue. So we have Barbara Johns and the students, and we have Barbara standing with her hand up like this, because she was, you know, and we carry this sign, we want equal education. And then on, one, on the other side, we have Oliver Hill and Spotswood Robinson, Reverend Griffin from Farmville. And on the back side, we wanted to speak to the future. And so we have just five or six individuals, young people, moving forward into the future, a brighter future. And so that was unveiled um, on a hot day in 20, 2008. It's something that I'm very proud of and um, so pleased that we were able to raise the money. It took about $3 million. And so this past year, I got a chance to go uh, last year with my granddaughter, Angelina's class, um, uh, her seventh grade class. They were doing a trip to Moton. So my daughter-in-law said, Mom, would you like to go? I think Angelina would like for you to, to um, be there to, so she could experience this with you. Most marvelous experience to be there in that place at Moton with my granddaughter and her classmates so that they could hear the story and see the reenactment of what had happened there. Uh, so hopefully 
some of what she learned and experienced there will help her to appreciate what she has and to know that there were others who were not nearly as fortunate as she would pave the way for her and others. So that would be my dream for all of our kids. This is an incredible story. What do you think current teachers should take away from this interview and just generally Miss Anderson's career? Teachers are the ones that mold and shape the future. The ways in which they open up the minds and the hearts and the soul of the next generation is what we need more than ever as we look toward what our futures are, whether we look in our cities and our communities, our nation, or even globally, and what they are able to do can inspire them, they can train them, and they can develop them. Whether they wind up being leaders like Judy Anderson or Governor Doug Wilder, or whether they are just being who they are in any phase of work that they do. Because it's not just their work, it's who they are as people that contribute to their community and to pass it on to the next generation, those values, those skills, that inspiration that we desperately need, particularly in our Black communities. I love that. I love that. I think we're done. Was there anything else you all wanted to say? We love Mrs. Anderson. (laughs) The night of the interview, the rain was coming down so ferociously that it it appeared to come down sideways as we looked into the lights. I went out to greet Mrs. Anderson with my umbrella. And she said, oh, I just had to be here. Ralph told me not to come, but I promised you and I promised Carmen. And I just had to keep my promise. And I said, Ralph, I've got to do that. And then furthermore, my granddaughter needs to hear me clearly talking about my career. And so I'm here. So baby, just help me in in the building. I'm Dr. Alexa Rodriguez, and I'm joined today by Dr. Carmen Foster and Mr. Gary Flowers. This has been Teachers in the Movement. For more information and to view the video interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is part of the Virginia Audio Collective. Our theme music is Summer Night by Vanilla. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is produced by Mary Garner-McGee. Thanks for listening.